All right, welcome to another season of Daily Theology Podcast. It's our season two premiere. The latest episode, which is episode 17, will feature my conversation with Dr. Timothy O'Malley at the University of Notre Dame at the North American Academy of Liturgy Conference in Houston, Texas. Tim is an old friend of mine from back at Boston College, and our conversation dealt with a lot of laughter, talked a lot about his early attempt at religious life and the current challenges of parenting a three-year-old. We also ventured into more sensitive topics involving the detachment with homiletics, returning to the basics with a new evangelization, and the lack of theological nuance with adoption. Of course, one cannot deny the generous amount of Notre Dame admiration weaved throughout the podcast, including a personal attachment to the physical and public nature of the infamous grotto. As always, please leave your comments on the blog or on iTunes. Feel free to tweet at us at Daily Theology. We love to have your questions and just to get a response on the podcast. And stay tuned for many great episodes this upcoming season with both myself, Steve Oakey, and a couple guest podcasters will be on here as well. Thank you so much for listening. All right, another Daily Theology podcast. It's Happy New Year. This is 2016. Feels kind of weird to say that. We just celebrated the Epiphany, and it's the end of the Christmas season. I'm in Houston. This is where I grew up, which feels also really weird. I have my uh, friend Tim O'Malley here to be on the podcast. Thank you for so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. And thanks for having me in Houston, the world's greatest city. <laughs> it's not it's not pretty by any stretch of imagination. A couple, couple of things that are happening, actually. It's like a really exciting Saturday. Powerball, like 700 million, it's up for grabs. So if you haven't bought a ticket. And then my Houston Texans are in the playoffs, which is like, we. this is our third time ever to go to the playoffs. So it's, a, it's weird that I'm in Houston, not for the playoffs, but for interviewing Tim. That's how much I care about you. No, that's really beautiful. <laughs> I uh, To celebrate the Texans, I actually got a back tattoo of the Texans. <laughs> Uh, well, if, uh, if our listeners don't know, Tim is the director of the Notre Dame uh, Center for Liturgy, and he also teaches in the Department of Theology at Notre Dame. Any, any other titles that I'm missing from you? No, that's right. Okay, so how long have you been at Notre Dame for? This is my sixth year. Wow, congratulations. A lot of time in South Bend. One of the questions we like to start off with is, what led you to the path to theology? What was the, fir- like, the first thing that kind of got you into this field, into this area? Yeah, so that's interesting. I actually grew up in the South in East Tennessee, and I was under 2% Catholic. So I was one of the the only sort of Catholics in my school. And it quickly became obvious at my school that every single Catholic question in literature, in world civilization, in Latin was going to have to be answered by me. So um, (laughs) as the sort of token Catholic, so who's Mary? And and to be frank, I didn't know. So um, I was riding the bus to school because my parents hated me in high school. And so (laughs) I was still riding the bus and I would read Uh, the catechism. You would read the catechism on the bus? On the bus, yeah. Which was, you know, it was the, uh, I see myself as sort of a early reading of the catechism hipster. Um, And that was actually the first time that I, I, it wasn't sort of the catechism text that was most interesting to me in the end. What, What interested me were all those footnotes. And so for the first time I heard 
this is Augustine, and this is uh, Aquinas, and this is Catherine of Siena. And I, I said, like, well, who are they? I don't know. And so when I went to Notre Dame, I took a theology course with John Cavadini, who was my freshman professor. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I realized that's what I wanted to study. So it, from then on out, the thing I wanted to study as an undergrad, and then I learned that grad school existed because I didn't quite understand that grad school existed and that people would pay you for things. <laughs> so that's, I kept going. And so pu public school was what you grew up with. and then I grew up in public school, yeah. Oh, wow. I, mm -hmm. I thought you were a Catholic school kid. Nope. My first time walking into a Catholic school was at Notre Dame, and I was very confused. There were crucifixes in the classroom, and I asked everyone around me whether they were Catholic for a, a good four weeks before <laughs> I realized that that was a stupid question. Why Notre Dame? Why Holy Cross tradition? Well, uh, I actually spent my first three years at Notre Dame were, were in the undergraduate seminary. So I was considering priesthood to Holy Cross. And I, so why Notre Dame? Uh, actually, as a Southerner, there was no attraction to Notre Dame. I remember the time that I looked up South Bend on a map, and I think I said, oh no, once I realized where it was. <laughs> and you know, where I grew up, Notre Dame was hated because they were the school that got all special interest above the University of Tennessee. So. I had never thought, uh, I had assumed that if I was going to go to a Catholic school, it was going to be in the South. And so uh, it was actually sort of undergraduate seminary that brought me to Notre Dame, and, and that's the only way. Why I'm still there is a great question. You know, psycho, you know psychologists might need to sort of discern. But the you you didn't choose the diocese, or you didn't choose that route. You choose like religious life. I'm assuming, right? I literally had no idea what religious life was. I mean, uh, <laughs> but you went to the seminary. I, yeah, that's absolutely right. I remember my first time on our retreat, really understanding for the first time that they were going to ask me to, like, take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And I was like, oh, this, so this really is a religious order. I knew it existed, but I was kind of just, I was like any 18-year-old. I didn't quite know what seminary was anyway. So <laughs> this one was fine. And so right. I, I did that one, and that one worked out fine. But I remember falling in love with Holy Cross tradition as I was learning about religious life and mm. the desire, of course, to be in a community of people who would support you and you would pray together and that that was attractive to me but at the beginning I really literally had no idea what I was doing I was probably the worst seminarian ever <laughs> so three years and then was, I guess your senior year is when you decided to transition to just regular back to lay, lay stuff yeah well yeah it was an interesting thing I did a, a summer program called Notre Dame Vision and I met my wife uh, doing that program she was a undergrad at Notre Dame too and we liked each other and then I decided to not go on to the major seminary in about a 48 hour period of time <laughs> now, now of course I had fallen in love about every you know two weeks I think in seminary right, so yeah, there were signs it wasn't you know Kara didn't drag me from seminary it was the sort of last moment of realization where I realized you know you really need to explore this so and yeah and then I went to lay life and how was that transition? Yeah, the biggest transition, at least for me, was, you know, the friends that I had, uh, sort of, they, because many of them continued on in religious life, they, it's not that they did, became not my friend, but they were no longer my primary friend group. And uh, so okay. the big transition yeah. for me was suddenly transitioning to the life of a kind of normal Notre Dame undergrad living in a dorm after, you know, it being normal to pray lauds together. <laughs> and then instead, um, 
there was right. not as much lauds going on in my dorm. So, right. so yeah, it was a different. It was different, though. I would say that in some ways the transition wasn't miserable because of uh, of how prominent the undergraduate seminary was on campus and everyone knew who we were, and so th it wasn't. You know, we weren't a pariah that that were sort of these disturbing figures. So, so people were open to the fact that I was in the seminary. You said you you had a class in undergrad that kind of entrenched you in theology. Did you know senior year that you wanted to go to graduate school for theology? When did that start? Yeah, I did. So the my senior year, I took a graduate level seminar in liturgical history and with Max Johnson. And that was the class that, that I knew exactly what I wanted to do in graduate school. And, and so from Max Johnson's course, I ended up applying to the MTS at Notre Dame in liturgical studies. And I knew from there that that's where I was going. In terms of liturgy, I, I don't, this is where I have questions myself. What what exactly about liturgy fascinates you that in such a way to study it? Yeah, I mean, so liturgy is attractive to me because, one, I'm very interested in historically how development occurs relative to what's taking place in the world, what's taking place in culture that influences Christian practice. And liturgy is a, is a place where there's sort of evidence of, of what's going on, whether it's early liturgy, medieval liturgy, uh, the Tractarian movement, uh, or even sort of the 20th century liturgical movement around th the mutual relationship between theology and culture and practice. And those are interesting things to me, and liturgy is the thing that you study to do that. You, you know, I, I, I remember when I was going off to graduate school for liturgy at the doctoral level, when, when I ended up saying I, was, I would be studying liturgical things, uh, people would say, like, well, why do you need to study that? Can't you just read a book? Can't you just read the, the, the right? And, right, yeah. uh, and I w what attracts me about liturgy is that, that influence of sort of culture and practice and theology into sort of one place where there's development. Does, with culture and, and uh, liturgy, do they, do they bounce off each other? Like yeah, for me, uh, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, every liturgical rite has developed out of a culture. So uh, I would say there was a, an era of liturgical historical scholarship in which it was presumed that at the Last Supper, Christ put on a chasuble and ordained the 12 <laughs> apostles. And, and I don't think that is tenable in any way because it, it takes a while to make a chasuble. So, and the, the supper wasn't that long. So there's a way in which culture the rites that are practiced in the church are necessarily drawn from certain cultural influences and cultural developments as it's moved along. And further, our capacity to pray or to sort of pray the liturgy well is influenced by our involvement in culture, in poetry, in art, in music, in all the sort of dimensions of what it means to be human. So yeah, it's I, instead of saying it's a two-way street, let's say that they're actually inseparable. Liturgy and culture are uh, liturgy is an expression of culture. I read about uh, your, your research and your work, and it says you, you focus on liturgical homiletics. So I wanted to see if you could say something about that, what that means. Yeah, so for me, I, I started, my, my doctoral work was in Augustine's liturgical preaching. So a lot of my, my work was in the way that images were used to form people for worship, and that actually led me to read other people through the ages who do this. I, I've taught courses, Melito of Sardis, uh, and the way that his sort of preaching forms people's memory for worship, and particularly the memory of the Paschal mystery. So by liturgical homiletics, I mean that kind of preaching that is really oriented towards preparation for worship. 
you hear preaching a lot, like the Protestant tradition. I mean, I know we talk a little bit about preaching in the Catholic tradition and in terms of the mass. When you say preaching, it just it seems like foreign to as a Catholic. We, we think of like homilies as like, oh, the priest gets up and like he says 30 minutes uh, or like 10 to 15 minutes of homily. And there isn't too much of like preaching, you know, like you think of like the other side of it with, of, of the Christian domination. They're like, he's a preacher. He's like passionate. So that's why when you say preaching, it, it just feels sure. like a foreign word. Yeah. It's a shame that it's foreign. I mean, so the liturgical action, sort of the the the, hom- the homily is a liturgical action when it takes place in the liturgy. And it's intended to have the kind of structure and form that you would typically have if you were encountering something beautiful and true and good. Uh, and homilies in the church are often neither true nor good nor beautiful. And I think that, <laughs> that a lot of that has to do with uh, th- that actually Catholics haven't actually emphasized formation and preaching enough. They haven't looked at the history of preaching and how preaching developed and the metaphors and images that good preachers use. Uh, I mean, it, our generation will go down as the generation. I teach a course on the history of Christian preaching. You know, generation after generation, I'm able to turn to homilies to give to students so for us to study. And our own generation, in a lot of ways, is going to be the generation in which it's very difficult to have what I would call like artful, constructed, homiletic discourse. They exist, and, and you know, there's transitions, you know, sort of you have it in spiritual reflections and books that are slightly different. But uh, our generation, I think, will go down as an, an age in which um, oral proclamation is really quite sad among Catholics, certainly in preaching. What, well, what makes a good homily, and, why is, and also why is it so challenging? I think it's challenging. So I'll start with it's challenging. I think it's challenging for a lot of reasons because it takes an incredible amount of like contemplative space to pray the scriptures well so that you have something to offer. I think it's challenging because at the sort of biblical formation that we give those who are sort of studying to preach, the biblical formation tends to be solely at the historical critical method, and we don't actually form the preachers to be able to move from historical critical exegesis to pastoral practice. So what you have is something like, well, I've looked at the text, and I know that Jesus could have said this, and I'll say something that... Jesus has this particular understanding of what sheep are or what grain is. And and then now I'm going to talk about something else unrelated to the scriptures. And and lastly, I think it's a challenge because I don't think people know how to read the lectionary. So the lectionary is already forming the homilist to understand how to preach. And if you were able to read the lectionary, understand what the link is between the Old Testament reading and the gospel, which is connected in every Sunday Eucharist, then you would have a sense of this. So there's a, there's a kind of lack of knowledge of, of that. In addition, I would say homilies tend to be, they tend to not deal with reality. They don't deal with realities like violence or suffering or sickness or even concrete moments of joy or gift or love. They deal at the abstract instead of the particular. And good preaching has always dealt in the particular. I remember sort of being shocked when I read Augustine's Sermon 9 in his sermons. And Augustine, like, is talking about the male congregants in his assembly who have committed adultery. And oh is talking God. about, wow. like, their committing of adultery. 
and why it's wrong. And, and there's not that degree of sort of prophetic particularity in preaching. And so I think a lot of Catholics walk out sort of uh, just unaware, or they simply sort of can walk away from it. Right. I mean, you see that like when you go to a parish, if you, if you don't spend a lot of time there, when you do the sign of peace, it feels kind of awkward because you don't know a lot of people there. Right. So this kind of disconnect, e- even in the homily, in, I don't know if the, if, if the formation in seminaries happens, but is, is there a way in which we're, we're, we're formating priests to be so detached? Like, why is it so detached? Or like, is it, is it, where's the gap? Yeah, to me, sort of seminaries today, it's interesting. You know, seminaries are great for spiritual formation, and they're great for human formation. I've visited a number of them, and they actually do, many of our seminaries are doing a brilliant job working with forming priests for the next generation. But our seminaries are also detached from the kind of pastoral realities that we expect priests to handle in a post-conciliar period. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we need priests who are being formed in conjunction with lay lay people to, to, to sort of be with them and understand a common mission that's taking place. And, uh, you know, in my experience at both Boston College and at Notre Dame, it's a sense of, of a real sort of comradeship that exists between seminarians and lay people in formation. And I think the more that seminaries open their walls to um, allowing these sort of pastoral realities. Uh, I was at a conference once, I remember, and it was no fault of the cleric, uh, and I won't name that cleric's <laughs> name. No, no need, no um, need, yeah. But the, no fault, uh, but you know, noted like, it's very hard today to be a bishop because when you're a bishop, you're, you know, someone's always telling you what to do. And I was, I had a one-year-old son at the time, and I said, yeah, I know what that's like, bishop, because I have someone who's always telling me what to do. Always <laughs> at three at four a.m. So, so I think the more that that there's this kind of comradeship, the collegiality that can exist, uh, especially amongst I think in a younger generation where where there's not a kind of conflict between those who are studying for ordination and those who aren't. Um, I, I think that's a conflict that's for a previous generation. It's not ours. So you you run the center at N- Notre Dame. What is it? What, what does it look like to to run a center to be a director of a center? I, I I was thinking this question last night of like, what does it mean to be a director of of a, of a center at a university? I know that can be a kind of a bland question, but I I, th- I found it to be quite fascinating because I have no idea. Yeah. So to direct a center is to direct anything is basically to do work that you that your doctoral work no way prepared you to do. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's like if I was a doctoral student in theology, how would I be a director? director of a center like how would this work yeah and I did not know and I spent the first sort of year figuring out how to do administration so you know administration uh, so to direct a center uh, our center does academic formation it does pastoral formation it does uh, academic lectures on campus Uh, so we do this work and so what does it mean for me to do this it basically involved me getting over the laziness that that or, or getting over <laughs> laziness might be the wrong word but getting over you know doctoral work is leisurely and it takes time yeah. it takes time but it's also very contemplative and you can go for walks and you know I, I see my work as in the line of an Augustine who was able to do writing and research and teaching but also dealt with disputes in his village uh, you know as a as sort of bishop so Administration for me, so what does it look like? It means learning to email well. It learns meaning to think strategically. The biggest thing I learned sort of as an administrator uh, and the, think, uh, the best gift I have sort of as now a theological administrator is that 
it's important to think strategically, to think about how you set goals and implement goals and work out goals. And I don't think that, I think, you know, theology in the academy, if it's going to flourish, it's going to need these people who exist at this realm between academic life, between research life, between teaching, and, and who are competent administrators. You say we, we need them. Why would a theologian who, who wants to publish, who wants to teach, why should they go into administration? Well, I think one reason we need administrators is I don't think theology at many of our institutions is necessarily something that those institutions are appreciative of. In other words, you know, it's not, if you study the history of, for example, Protestant higher education, you had a very quick secularization process that occurred at these institutions within the course, you know, George Marsden book on the secularization of American Protestant higher education is sort of, uh, I think, a must read for any theologian on the market today. It's very quickly for, it, it's very, it, it happens very quickly to have a really excellent theological institution lose all theology if there aren't people who are sort of representing the theology's interests right. at the institutional level okay. and so yeah, it's that makes sense it's great to research it's great to publish it is the theological life but administration is necessary um, for that reason not to mention that theology exists only insofar as it's in a relationship to the church and for at least my administration concretizes that at Notre Dame. It's Notre Dame's service to the church uh, so that we don't float free into kind of a Gnostic theology as Pope Francis sort of warns us against. It has to be grounded in the, the actual life of the church. So, so this leads to my next question. I, I don't know too much about the history of Notre Dame. I know probably a bit more than your average layperson. When did Notre Dame become the face of Catholic universities? Like when did why and why Notre Dame? Why not like a Georgetown or, or, or like trying to think of like Fordham or like any sort of Catholic university that makes sense? Or Catholic University of America, it's in their name, right? Like why did Notre Dame take on well, it's very important that I do not sort of say that Notre Dame is entirely the face of the Catholic <laughs> I, University. I, I, uh, this, that was my question. My for question. our peers at Catholic <laughs> U and other institutions, and then, uh, right, who right. Are, are so. So, why does Notre Dame matter to in the, the in, in the media? They, Notre Dame is, I would, I would assume, is it, it lo is looked at, you know, as like this Catholic university proper. Right. So yeah, why does Notre Dame matter? That that's uh, to to sort of Catholics, and I think that's a great question. It, a lot of it has to do with historical accidents of football, which is at a time in with in which America was in which Catholics were sort of a non-welcomed group of people in the United States. You had this small football team in South Bend, made up primarily of Catholics, who were on the national stage excelling, and you had a group if you were a, a an Irish immigrant in New York City, you had this group of people, you had something to root for. And so that's why it matters at that end. Now, why, for example, is it not just Alabama of, you know, what what is it that sort of, and, and for that answer, I think it's Father Ted Hesburgh, who thought through the sort of context of what Catholic higher education was going to be in the next generation, who refused to allow Notre Dame to remain a football school alone. When he was made president, they asked him to take a picture with a football, and he <laughs> said, no, I'm the president, not the football coach. <laughs> right. and, and so he sort of transformed what it me means to be at Notre Dame uh, as that sort of institution. And I think at that stage, it mattered for other reasons now. It mattered for its academic life, for this experiment that it's trying to do to, to be a top-notch research university 
and be entirely Catholic. And that's something that is hard and there's tension there and it's trying to do that. And I think that's why it matters. When you teach your students, do you find that they care about being at a Catholic university and, and them being Catholic and, and what that means towards Notre Dame? Are, are they focused on that or is it just like I went to Notre Dame because it's prestigious and like it has a recognition? My students are all vaguely religious but not super religious. I offer a first assignment. I teach a Foundations of Theology course for undergraduates, which includes, you know, just it's, a, it's an easy semester, a quick romp through the Old Testament, New Testament, and patristic period in 14 weeks. So, you know, <laughs> you, the easiest class you, you can teach. Um, and so uh, my first assignment for those students is to sort of, is to ask them, tell me about your religious background. Not because I grade it, not because, you know, <laughs> I can grade faith. Uh, if I could, I wouldn't be doing particularly well myself. So, right. But I want to know where you come from, what your assumptions are. And, and so uh, I had 30 students this semester, 24, 25 were Catholic, and I would say 20 were on their way out of the church. Really? Yeah, and... I would say they are not coming to Notre Dame because it's Catholic. Maybe their parents are. Maybe their parents are pushing them. Maybe they know something about it as Catholic, and they're interested in sort of spirituality. But the Catholic thing, to me, is marginalized to the prestige thing. And they want to be excellent. They want to make money. They want to be famous. They want to climb the ranks. And so the Catholic thing exists as a sort of nice... It's maybe a cherry on top, but it's not a substantive reason that I think my students are, are coming to Notre Dame across the board. Now, there I, I have some students who are more religious than, you know, the, the, you know they would sort of shame Pope Francis, I think, for religious practice. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but I would say sort of general student population, this is what I've noticed in recent years, is, is there's apathy. It's not hostility. It's not anger. It's sort of, eh. What, what, is that a generational day? Is it is it just a time where the church is at right now, or like what? Where's apathy stemming from? Yeah, I think probably apathy stems in part from bad preaching, bad liturgy, bad catechesis. So that that's part of their apathy. I think part of the apathy stems from what is the function of religion in public life? To a lot of these American teenagers, religion is kind of an optional aspect of life. It doesn't shape your public identity. It doesn't, you know, it, it's cool. It's like, I have a tattoo. I actually don't have a tattoo. The second time I reference <laughs> tattoo. Um, I have a tattoo, I have a piercing, and I practice religion. Right, yeah. It's sort of one of the ways that you can play with your identity. And for that reason, I, I don't think for them, it, in any way you want to play with your identity is fine. So uh, religion isn't concerned with truth claims necessarily. And so for them, is it truly private? It, like it's almost, it, it's great for you, but don't make it like a public. It's event. entirely private. Right, yeah, I would yeah. say it's, it's private to the extreme. So it's yours. That's fine. Eh, I don't know if I'm interested in it. And if I am, I may need it sometime when I need it, not when the church needs me or when I need it. So, yeah, I think that. Is that a challenge when you're teaching a theology course overall? I mean, I know they want to they want to do well and, and academically they'll study. But like when you're really trying to do theology, not just religious studies, like wh what are the challenges you kind of face up with that? Yeah, for my students, the challenges would be they don't always care that this discipline comes well after the other disciplines of which they're far more actively engaged in. Science, right. you know, business. 
And my job as an instructor is to let them know that this is an intellectually rich tradition that if you actually let your intellect flourish in it, you may find yourself spiritually flourishing. And, and so that's how I, I teach undergrads. And I, I actually find at the end of a semester, they're not necessarily going to mass, and that's not my goal, right. but they're... Are they asking questions? Like they're asking they... questions, and uh, they would. Uh, I think you know Augustine notes when he talks about when finally the Manichees are, are are eliminated from his imagination that through Ambrose that Christianity proved not that it conquered yet, but it wasn't conquered, and that I would say is how they leave my class. That the church may not have conquered, but it also isn't conquered, that there's intelligence, reasonability, beauty, intellectual sophistication to this tradition that is, they're going to have to look at it again. So uh, in a way, when you talk about your teaching, you're kind of, we're kind of uh, pointing at like the new evangelization that you've kind of written about in a way. Could you speak a little bit towards like your scholarship of that, especially with the center in terms of what do you mean by the new evangelization and like how do you see it moving forward? Yeah, so for like new evangelization, I often think that it, it, it comes to be understood either as a sort of quote-unquote conservative thing where what it really means is nothing more than trying to shore up everyone to believe exactly what is important. And, 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 and while, by the way, I, I, I teach doctrine, I love doctrine, and I subscribe to doctrine, to me that's not sort of a way of sort of flourishing of a religious tradition. So for me, new evangelization just means a recommitted effort that the church makes to find what is in the tradition and treasury of the church that's good and beautiful and true, and to return to those sources and to renew, the, for the church to be renewed by the study of those sources so that the church can actually present to the world the fullness of who the church is. And that would be more attraction. That's what makes it sort of evangelizing. So the, this retrieval, is does it assume that we're not doing it the best way we can right now? Is that is that what it's happening? Or I think one can always assume that you're not doing something the best way ever. But I think retrieval more is a theological method. It's a form of ressourcement that I think has happened in every generation of renewal of the church in which you return to those sort of pivotal sources, those pivotal ideas, the building blocks of what you draw upon so that you can have new life grow up from there. And so to me, that's just sort of the nature of the church. If you look at every sort of reform movement in the church, it's really a return to the sources. And so to me, new evangelization is part of that. Um, it also has social implications. I think it's the involvement of, it's the church's involvement in the world, the church's mission to the margins, uh, the church's mission agentes. All of that's involved. But for me, it's taking realistically the sense that we have a generation who would call themselves sort of baptized in the life of the church, but don't actually understand what that means. And it's taking seriously that we need to offer an intellectually sophisticated, beautiful, ethically true approach to human flourishing for the for the modern person. How do you do that? Well, it's a great question. Um, how do you do that? Well, I do think that we have to return to the basics. And I remember when, so in my doctoral work, you know, after you spend five or six years on a project, your only focus is, you know, I remember I would wake up and the only thing I thought about was, you know, hippo, 
up to the year 420. Um, <laughs> you, you know, that was all that I was thinking about. Right, and right. I remember I got back to Notre Dame and I took a course that Notre, that John Cavadini, I didn't take the course, but I sat in, that John Cavadini again was teaching called the Catholic Faith. And it was a really back to the basics approach. You know, what is the incarnation and why does it matter? What is doctrine? Like, like what is redemption and why does it matter? And I think those return to the basics is essential as a teacher. It's how a professor performs the new evangelization. A professor does not try to make his or her students Catholic. In fact, it's not even appropriate many times. Um, what one should be doing is sort of presenting the beauty of that tradition. And, and how do you do it? Well, you contemplate it, you pray with it, you believe it's true yourself, you live it out, you are a spiritual theologian. And to me, that's a way that it's done. There's a lots of other ways to do it. I mean, there's work with service, there's work in spiritual formation, uh, all sorts of things. When I was teaching high school, I had, I had so many students who had a misconception of it. And then also in my adult life, uh, just a lot of friends who they see this church as this one way and they got it through public media or like some 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 or maybe just like their experience of a very small like sample size. And then I, I share them my experience of the church and they go, oh, that's that's Mike Avery Catholicity. That's not the cat. That's not the Catholic Church. Like you're not representing the whole church. And for me, it, I always struggle with that. I don't know if you struggle that with yourself, where, you're, where you start to really hash it out with someone, you show them, you, you get deeper, then they start to have this criticism of, well, that's not how it really is. Like, how, how would you respond to that? Like, that's where, I, it's a personal question of my own. I always feel if people are saying that's not really where it is, what they mean is it actually isn't that for them. So it's to take seriously whatever sort of wounds that they come into when they're dealing with the church. And I take those wounds seriously. I, I take wounds of boredom. I take wounds of of uh, being maltreated by forms of clericalism, which I think can be either lay or ordained. There's many forms of clericalism that are from lay people. I take those wounds of uh, seriously, um, and I think that there's the, the reality of the church is not always the truest identity of what the church is. The church is a visible and invisible reality, and that invisible reality matters. It's the ideal to which the church is called to as a, as a communion of the triune God, as a as communion amongst all humanity, as the mission to eventually invite all of humanity into the activity of divine praise in the city of God. That is the church. And the the visible matters, and the visible fails, and the visible's faulty. But in that regard, I, so I take those things seriously. I, I don't fight against them. I'm, I'm a bad sort of arguer. I yield a lot of points, and then um, but I do want to present an, um, a total vision, a, an aesthetic vision. Moving forward, to talk about wounds and failures. I read two of your American Magazine articles about adoption. In the piece, you kind of you struggle with the Catholic thing with adoption as like a last resort, and I, I never really knew about that. So I would love to hear kind of your commentary on adoption, the process of it, and just your experience overall. Yeah, I think adoption is an under, so so from my own experience of it, it was a source of incredible personal grace to receive a gift that I did nothing to deserve. It was the perfect image to me of divine grace in which one receives pure gift. And the pure gift of the birth mother whom we met and 
who gave herself, who did something that was countercultural and that was was potentially open to leaving her open to judgment. And, and yet we met her and she thanked us. I mean, it was an image of pure grace. And so the experience was sort of excellent. And for me, the, the problem comes with the church. The problem with adoption is that the church often in marriage doesn't consider those moments in which things don't always turn out perfectly well. And yeah, adoption often takes place because couples can't have children. And adoption often takes place because children are born in really, really, really rough situations and, and parents have to make difficult decisions. And instead of viewing it as like, well, this is what you do when you can't have kids. The church really needs to think about a form of parenthood, a theology of parenthood, a theology of parenting that isn't linked solely to procreation, but that's linked to, to opening up a space in one's home to parent this child, to become, I think that there's a lot of sort of theological richness that's, that's evident in adoption, relative to marriage and parenting that I think the church really must do better with. And, you know, I see it as my job to do some of this research with it, but I, I think it, it certainly matters in pastoral practice. Have you shared your experience with others who have asked you, like, do we, should we adopt or we're having this issue? Have you had a chance to pastorally share your experience with others? In, yeah, in this the, the things I've written on adoption, you know, in some ways I don't write on adoption professionally, but the things that I've written on adoption have been that which I've heard the most feedback from. I probably receive an email or two a week from someone asking, you know, or telling me like we adopted or I just found out that I'm infertile. Uh, I, I can't have children and your piece, you know, presented some image of hope in the midst of, of kind of desolation for me. And yeah, so it, it, it's opened up conversations that I didn't think that I would have. And it offers a place for me to do a very small ministry. And I think especially for me, as a, as a man who's talking about it, uh, I've often found for a lot of people, um, fathers, fathers, the, the men don't actually end up talking about it. It's sort of silent. So it's created a space, I think, especially for men who are afraid to talk about their own inadequacies in the midst of infertility to actually be able to say, I am feeling all of this and I don't know what to do with it. Is there is there is there's need or space for a kind of theology of this like as well like do you think there's a lot written on kind of this adoption there's not no there's not a lot written on adoption there's a couple sort of books that are essays but you know there's not a lot of written on adoption of course there's not a lot written on the sacrament of marriage so you know to me these are just kind of areas of theology that are really sort of undermined under analyzed under treated especially from sort of sacramental theology's perspective you know, marriage is viewed as, you know, it's salvific, but it's often treated as sort of a secondary vocation to um, ordination or something of the sort. And, and to me, you know, marriage is, is really, is itself a kind of transformation of the human being in, through salvation, through love. And, and you have to, I, I think it needs far more attention across the board, and adoption especially needs a place in there. So your, your son is how old? He's three. Wow. So any, any, any uh, wisdom for any new parents out there or like that you've learned so far with your, with your son? Three is worse than two. Um, <laughs> Why is that? I don't know. I, I think he's secretly trying to kill us. So, um, or not even secretly, but openly. I mean, the, the level of tantrums. I would say that parenting has for me been the, the greatest sort of introduction into humility, into patience and into, yeah, right? into I'm a better teacher 
and I'm a better colleague because I'm a parent, because I've learned a lot about waiting and patience and and learning that sometimes the route of conflict isn't the most direct route. It's actually, it, it will cause more problems. That the, the, the route is a sort of subtle, persuasive love that, that actually is more effective. And I, I'm a much better human being now that I'm a parent. Oh, that's, that's a really nice, <laughs> nice sentiment. I, I myself, I'm, I'm now an uncle, so I've, I've learned a little bit, not as much, not as ha- much hands-on, but you kind of get it, you kind of can see beyond yourself in a way that I never thought I would before, like, is beyond my own scope that I can be a part of, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, it really does. It sort of transforms, you know, transforms the way that you look at the world every day. We didn't we didn't get this before, but uh, you're kind of like the biggest Notre Dame guy I know. What is, what's your favorite tradition of Notre Dame? For me, the my, my favorite tradition at Notre Dame, and and I do actively root for the Notre Dame football team. So I'm, but I'm not going to ch- choose that. Um, for me, a really, really important tradition at Notre Dame is the grotto, which is a place where people can go play, pray, not play, um, <laughs> right. pray to the Blessed Virgin and offer prayers of supplication, of intercession, of of love to uh, our mother. And uh there's a real way in which it's the heart of spiritual life on campus. It's the place where students work out their anxieties and their angsts, where people fall in love and fall out of love. And to me, it's a perfect kind of image of the church as mother. The church is this place where all that makes us human, all that matters to our humanity, there is a place for it. And the grotto is that. It's a place where everything about being human gets drawn in there. And people go for the grotto for all sorts of different reasons. Some have deep devotions to to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Others like that it's quiet. And and so here's an image of the church. uh, Ingathering of humanity, some of whom are there because they love it. Some are there because it's quiet. Some are there because it's there. And and that's okay. And that's actually how the salvation of humanity is going to unfold. And you, you talked about um, your students saying religion's private. Or in the grotto is this very physical public space in the university right there where all kinds of students can see each other uh, and see and like and it's you. So in a way... The grotto, it's the, the, op- the opposite of what the students are kind of saying. You know, religion's private, and if you like it, that's good. If not, and yet this grotto is, is it's kind of where a lot of the university comes together. Yeah, it's a great point. It really is public, and, and to light a candle, it, it's a, it, it certainly creates, you know, American religion is often defined as sort of, you know, I'll have my affections, and I don't need to do anything about them, but I can sort of relate personally to God alone. And yet here at the grotto, you say... Actually, I I need to light a candle. I need to kneel. I need to do these bodily actions that actually sort of express my religious identity. It's a really great point. I never thought about it like that. One of the things we end with before we go to the final questions is, do you have any advice for maybe a first-year professor or someone who's in graduate school, things that you learned along the way that maybe stuck with you or you had a mentor yourself uh, give you that has been really beneficial? Yeah, the best, uh, my advice, and and this is someone who I think when I was first in doctoral work and certainly first as a professor was that I wanted to take on every battle and win and fight everything. And one of the things I realized is you can't do that and also it's just not effective. That uh, the best advice I was ever given by someone 
was you can sail every way but into the wind. And so when one encounters an obstacle in your career, whether it's at the doctoral level, you, an advisor whom you don't like that much or whom wants to sort of rewrite your entire dissertation, or uh, faculty and colleagues who just are actually sort of like not that great, um, the best thing to do is not to sail directly into it, not to come out with guns blazing, but to tact, move, because you can sail every way but into the wind. So, so I would say don't sail into the wind. That's great. That's a great analogy. I'm gonna I'm gonna think about that a lot now. It's like, am I sailing into the wind? Is this the answer for me? Most of the time was yes. I was. <laughs> right. Okay. We're, we have five like not like fast questions. They're just fun questions. They're less serious. So feel free to have fun with it. You've probably heard them before if you've heard the podcast. The first thing I asked uh, is, what is your favorite or least favorite liturgical song? And this is great for you because we're at this conference for liturgy, so you can like choose whatever this is a this question has a, a high level of political import though for me and my position so choose so, so i will say um my least favorite liturgical song is a lot of praise and worship so i'll just say that <laughs> that's fair what's your favorite do you have a favorite one my favorite hymn is uh the church is one foundation the which church is, is anglican oh, oh mm-hmm. okay nice all right second question are you uh team bow tie or team necktie i am team bow tie, though I can't tie one, so I only wear it when my wife can tie it for me. <laughs> There's YouTube videos I, I had to teach myself. Step four is the worst one. It's like a magical knot you have to find. Yeah, I have been unable to, I've spent many hours with those YouTube videos, <laughs> and I'm incompetent. <laughs> you wrote a dissertation, but you can't tie a bow tie. I cannot tie a bow tie. That's insane, I love that. Uh, question three, what profession would you have attempted or like to attempt if you didn't choose academia? Politics. In what fashion? Uh, I would be a, a, a political boss, sort of an Irish. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I think I probably would have wanted to have like done sort of constitutional law in politics. So like law school, work yeah. at DC, the whole night. Yeah. Wow. But you're going into the wind again, right? Is this like... Exactly. <laughs> This is a new question, and it's kind of kitschy, but I, I, I find it fascinating still. If you could have three people over for dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite and why? Oh, okay. So I would have over Augustine, which is sort of a, a basic one for me because I would like to ask him some questions. <laughs> um, I would have over Newt Rockney because I think that would be an interesting conversation partner. I would like to hear sort of about his own football you know, pursuits. Okay. And then I would have over John Henry Newman, who I'm very interested in right now. So I would like the, sort of a conversation between those three. I assume Newt would feel a bit left out, but yeah, I, yeah. but so would I. So <laughs> I, I think you know, Newt could sort of interrupt things for me. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. Nice. And then final question. I was going to have you say name one nice thing about BC that they do better than Notre Dame, but we'll, we'll just assume BC is oh, I get, Yeah, <laughs> they have a great continental philosophy program. <laughs> what, what would the title of your biography be? Um, right now it would be I'm tired, <laughs> but but maybe sort of there needs to be something inspirational. Um, I, I well when we we were before we were uh, taping the podcast, someone we had a couple of people in this room. We're we're at a higher Regency in Houston, a typical hotel. You said I have infinite patience. I feel like that could be your title. That would be a much better title than I'm tired. So, so yes, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, if you're gonna write a hagiography uh, of me, I would prefer that. Um, but probably there's a certain sort of prayer actually in the marriage rite that okay. um, is uh, that I, I can't quite remember. But uh, I think for me, sort of my identity as a married person, it would have to be something about marriage. It's it's who I am in relationship to my wife. So so it'd be something about that. 
No, sorry, something about marriage. All yeah. Right. And hopefully something about not going into the wind. So. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> well, this has been fun. I had a lot of great time. Thank you so much for putting up with my nonsense. And thank you so much for letting me put you on the podcast. Uh, you know, hopefully the rest of Houston won't be too unbearable. So. No, it won't. I'm sure that there we're, there's barbecue and Mexican food. And so so there is uh, redemption. We do have redemption in that. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.